know. My life, my life is here. in danger right now. Murph was just listening in. I just getting ready to record, and just like the guys who decided to horn in on our Patreon uh, recording this morning, which, by the way, you can find at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Um, we did You Can't Make This Shit Up. The minute I get ready to plus record, my wife goes in, opens the microwave door, throws the coffee in, closes it, heats it. It's like, okay, how much noise can we make right before Daddy gets on the air? Well, we know who's in charge. <laughs> She's right. You're wrong. That's just the way it is. I know. I got two cats who are in charge of me, too, man. I'm the lowest-ranking dude in this household right now. <laughs> But we say that to say this. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Game of Crimes. As you figured out right now, I am the host, the the, the unofficial uh, brand ambassador for Tommy Bahama, Morgan Wright, here literally with my partner in crime. Steve Murphy. You can call me Murph. And I'm just curious to see if his wife's going to come in and knock him right out of his chair. Well, if you hear a slap, if, if it goes silent for a while, I didn't hit the <laughs> mute button by accident. So... <laughs> If this happens, I'll take a screenshot. We'll post it on our website. Yeah, do that. All it'll be is a blank chair, you know, maybe my feet sticking up in the uh, air. So, hey, guys, well, welcome back. Hey, uh, so what are we here doing? Well, the script says I need to do say thank you for joining us. Small talk. Okay, check. Now housekeeping. Housekeeping. In the area of housekeeping, we have two things. Apple and Spotify. Go over and hit those five stars. It's fun. It's exciting. It's something you can do as the entire family. Bring everybody together and hit those five stars. It really helps us out a lot. And head on over to our website, GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got our book list there, which uh, we added several books by our last guest, who um, Mike Arnfield, who just had a bunch of them. We had a good episode on that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, also, uh, our mailing list. Follow us on that thing called the social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But Murph, where do you got to be? Repeated three times very quickly. Where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be. No, that's what, that's my shtick. You say, oh, you got to be, okay, fine, I'll do the Murph thing. You got to be on Patreon. <laughs> we got a lot of cool shit there. No, you, you got too many teeth. You can't say it right. No, everybody, you come and check us out on Patreon. And like Morgan said at the beginning, we just posted uh, our monthly, you can't make this shit up. This is one of the funniest episodes we've done since we started this thing. It's just amazing the stupid things that people do and, and, uh, some of the calls that police receive. Naked men and naked <laughs> sex dolls and people naked in the sauna. There's a lot of nakedness and meth in this particular episode. Unbelievable. But, uh, I mean, we've got a lot of good stuff over there. One of the things we love the most is our monthly Q&A, and that's where you send in the questions, and we'll answer them. We haven't turned down a single question yet. Might always, might always be right, but we we answer. That you know of. We always, I always uh, bribe Murph. I always extort him. I say, look, I'm going to ask this question unless you send me 50 bucks. So, Yeah, I haven't paid him yet. <laughs> Have, well, that's because you're a cheap <laughs> bastard. I sent an invoice to you. Anyway. Um, come over and try us out. See what you think. Yeah, and look, guys, it's a lot of fun, and we've got some good stuff coming up, like 911, what's your emergency? You guys become the detective. Uh, you put your Sherlock Holmes hat on, and we use your audio capabilities, your audible capabilities, and see if we can discern fact from fiction, truth from deception, and see if you can come to the right conclusion on that particular case. But hey, guys, it's all fun. You'll only find it at one place, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. One more time, Murph, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. What was All it? right. Yeah, what was I'll it? send you I'll send you a link. Okay. Hey, also feel free to use PayPal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com. If you just want to do a pause for the cause, throw one over the wall, paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you just fabulous content. By the way, quick disclaimer, because that's what the bullet point says. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the stories extremely seriously, but 
As you know, we never, never, never take ourselves seriously. We like to have some fun. I, I think I was serious one time, but I mean, that's, that was a mistake. So, but <laughs> hey, but before we can get into the good stuff, we got to get into the funny stuff. And that means you know what time it is. Guess what time it is, Murph. Guess what time it is. Guess what time it is. It's time for... Small Town Police Blotter. Notice how I turned that around on you? You're wondering where am I going with this? Because you're supposed to say it's time for Small Town Police Blotter. Anyway, I digress. Steve, this first one comes to us from Jackie Samara Firos, one of our loyal players out there, always posting things on the Game of Crimes fan group, just uh, always sending in fun stuff. She sent in a really good one, too. Thank you, Sandy. Tonopah, Arizona. By the way, Steve, you remember we did some stories before, like over in Nigeria and other places where... uh, they said, hey, that a goat was possessed, it committed a crime, so they took it into custody. You know, they kind of do some weird things there. Yeah. Apparently, apparently in Arizona, that has trickled over. Deputies in Arizona had their animal wrangling skills tested when they were called with reports of a goat who was terrorizing people at their homes. <laughs> what is it, a vicious goat? You know, the goat named Billy, duh, was a little rowdy, according to the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office. Deputies said the goat had damaged a garage door and an electrical cord and even chased someone around a car. That's what goats do. Yes. Well, the deputies, but Steve, the deputies were able to get Billy under control until he peed on one of them. <laughs> the next gate, the goat, the next day, the goat was turned over to, they tased him, I believe. They turned him over to Maricopa <laughs> County Livestock. He went, ah, like really fast five times. <laughs> How do you Did taste? they really tase him or are you making that no, up? No, I'm just I'm making that up. Oh, okay. But it sounds cool. But hey, what does funny. the goat sound like when you taste? Sounds the same. Ah. But that's what people sound like when you taste them. Uh, the sheriff's office said Billy is facing charges that include trespassing, assault, criminal damage, and disorderly conduct, or at least he would be if he weren't a goat. However, though, the Arizona family, the website reporting this, also said Billy's having trouble getting an attorney. Apparently, he just butts heads with his uh, lawyers. <laughs> oh, you think that's a dun dun Wait till the next one. All right. Well, I mean, you know, think about it. That's what goats do. If you've ever been around goats. They're going to butt you. That's what they do. They eat what they things, do. They butt the, and then they pee on you. So. Yeah. He, Ooh, he was pee. just milking himself. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, this next one, I had to go across the pond to the Manchester area. Oh, I've been to Manchester. We it's had, beautiful. Uh, yeah, beautiful drug place. people out of our show. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you hooligan, you. <laughs> so, Steve, apparently a cannabis user who stole Viagra from a pharmacy he was banned from uh, ran into some more trouble. So Stephen Cooper stole the packet of Viagra from a Lloyd's pharmacy as he needed it for himself due to forming a relationship with the woman, according to the court. Now, a drugs warrant, as they say, a drugs warrant had been executed at his address in Leek, not the other kind of Leek. This one's called L-E-E-K. Eight days prior to the incident, and f- police found only 10 pounds worth of cannabis in his room. You know, not not the crime of the century now. Use. Cooper's been handed a 12-month conditional discharge at North Staffordshire Justice Center. However, when they conducted the warrant uh, on March 11th, they found the cannabis on a bedside table. The defendant returned to the address during the search and agreed to be interviewed. On March 19th, this is after being banned, he entered Lloyd's Pharmacy once again and stole a packet of Viagra. Now, Miss Wright, his his barrister, his... uh, solicitor, as they say over there. Four weeks before that, he had gone to the pharmacy and tried to steal four packets of Viagra. He apologized. The shop did not tell the police, but banned him as they have a zero zero tolerance policy. He left the pharmacy. But on the 19th, the staff noticed him inside the store. They saw him place a packet of Viagra into his bag and run out. They interviewed him. He admitted the cannabis was his. He admitted the shoplifting offense, but the lawyer pleaded mercy, saying that his client was not a hardened criminal. (laughs) (laughs) 
say he's a stupid criminal, but... Uh... <laughs> Apparently the evidence wouldn't stand up in court. <laughs> I wonder if his girlfriend's dumped him yet for non-performance. I don't know. I, I, well, you know, the other reason they let him go, too, the, 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 the solicitor said, so, Your Honor, there's a lack of evidence here. We can't do anything about it. <laughs> so All I right, guess Steve. he wasn't swinging in the wind, was he? It wasn't nothing, nothing. You got, he got nothing. Just a light, light whistle as it breezed through the, the gap between the legs there. All right. Hey, this is these are three quick hits. So I found these things on a couple different sites, but they're just real short ones. So a woman called 911 and said she couldn't walk home because she couldn't call a cab because the phone she was calling from was on dead. Was on dead. I was calling on was dead. Mm, she don't quite understand that, does she? Nope. How can you How call on the phone work? if it's dead? Yeah. Well, maybe the way this one works, 6.37 a.m., a woman reported a 15-month cyber-stalking incident, which included a constant floodlight trained on her and satellites pointed at her that were causing blisters. For how long? 15 months. And she's just not getting around the call? Yeah, apparently her phone was dead, too. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> she's using the same phone as the first lady. Yeah, and a Kalispell woman allegedly, not she not allegedly, she called the Flathead Sheriff's Office to complain about being on the couch and her juice was in the kitchen. Oh, I don't want to move it. Oh, I'm not touching that one. Not touching it. That's that what MC Hammer can't said. Sh- can't touch this. Da, 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 da. Oh, it should be on. You can't make a shit up. Oh, boy. Well, anyway, that was, there's your quick hit. So uh, thus endeth the reading for today. P.A.S. Domine, Domine is Requiem. That is it for today. I just thought I'd hit with those three quick hits. But, man, I, I was waiting. I could almost keep myself. He's not a hardened criminal. But yet he stole Viagra. <laughs> Get your money back, You've been dude. planning for a week for that, haven't you? Oh, boy. I, ever since I saw it, I said, okay, i got to set this one up right. All right. Well, hey, speaking of setting things up right. Neither one of these guys are hardened criminals, trust me, but they have arrested many hardened criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them's a good buddy of mine, been a buddy for a lot of years. Uh, Tommy Joyce retired uh, as a lieutenant with the New York City Police Department, NYPD, was in charge of their cold case squad. I believe it was in the 7-9 precinct. Uh, we'll talk about that. And a buddy of his uh, that was a detective sergeant by the name of Mike Prate, they join us now. We kind of do our normal thing on this, uh, Steve, you know, where we kind of go in their backgrounds. But this one, we didn't really talk about a specific case. We talked about many of them, including rappers that they'd arrested, the cash money mob, uh, people, you know, murders that were involved. You know, just what this was really fun, Steve, was it's kind of you're sitting around a bar and you say, hey, you know, back in the day, what did you do? And you just talk about some of the stories. So we don't go totally deep on a lot of them. But this one, we kind of cover a few stories to give you kind of the, the feeling of what it was like. To be in New York working with Tommy and Mike. You know, there's uh and I've never met these guys before we did the the interview. And as our listeners, if you don't know, we actually use video, but we only record the audio for now. Down the road we may go video as well, but that way we can see each other. And I've never met Tommy or Mike. And that's what I love about NYPD guys. You might you meet them, they realize you're part of the brotherhood. Uh, you're automatically a member of the family, the law enforcement family. So Tommy's now, and he's in a private business, and and uh, I guess that causes him to come to Orlando. So he's going to give me a call the next time we come. But there's things that go on in New York that don't happen anywhere else in the world. That like. should be a whole episode if you can't make this <laughs> shit up. You're not kidding. And just to hear what they go through up there, I mean, um, how many cops they got? How many tens of thousands of police officers do they have? Well, they're down. Look, believe it or not, they're down below what they were on 9-11, the 9-11 levels. They were used to be up over 40,000. I think he said they're at 32,000, maybe even below that now. Yeah. And, and, you know, thank you to all the politicians for making that happen to make your city less safe. If you don't believe it, talk to the residents or talk to the police officers have to deal with that crap every day. 
Um, but just to hear these stories, uh, you know, you can walk up and identify yourself to a New York cop and they, I mean, they'll take a picture with, you, you know, it's just, I love those guys. I, I was always uh, somewhat in awe of them and maybe even a little bit afraid when I was younger, you know, cause I mean, these are the real cops. They're like the LA guys, the Houston guys, the Chicago coppers, you know, this is a real deal. So just it, to have these two on here is an honor and, you know, and then hopefully I'm going to get to meet these guys in person someday. So good choice. Yeah, no, no. And it's good, good friend to uh, Tommy and his wife, Susan. So uh, these guys stand up people. Mike is too, even though he refused to come on camera. We said we were on camera and we were drinking. There was some drinking involved. Uh, I had one of my favorite Belgian beers and I know Tommy had uh, some type of liquor that was on ice in a tumbler. Um, I'm sure it's probably whiskey or bourbon or something along those lines, but we had a good time. Um, and I'll tell you what, but there's only one way we're going to find out what they talked about. And that's me asking you the penultimate question, the pinnacle of podcasting question. That is Murph. Are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous in New York city state of mind, friendly game of crimes? This is exciting, everybody. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. We want to hear from Tommy and Mike, NYPD at its finest. Well, you know what happened? He was gone to a a worldwide Tommy Bahama conference, and he just couldn't drag his ass away. That was it. (laughs) Nice. That's good to know. You know, um, I started recording this, all of this abuse that you're heaping on me. <laughs> Good. <laughs> all right. Hey, well, I know I, on I, you wouldn't, it means we wouldn't like you. I know. I, I hit record and, and all of you folks out there, hey, first of all, welcome. All right. We're just going to get started with this. We're throwing you guys to the wolves. Screw this setting up because I'm just taking all sorts of abuse. And I say, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to document this. So, hey, first of all, before we get started, everybody, welcome back. This is going to be another exciting episode of Game of Crimes. You know why? Because we got two guys, two New Yorkers. One of them, a guy I've known for quite a while. Another guy, I haven't seen him yet because he's hiding. He won't turn on his video camera. I don't know how he's dressed, but uh, it could be commando. But, hey, Mike and Tommy, (laughs) welcome to Game of Crimes, you crime fighters. Well, Morgan, Steve, thanks for having us. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity. We just love to uh, kick the stories around and love to hear from you guys. And uh, hopefully we have some some interesting topics to talk about today. Oh, man. Cops have the best war stories, as I always do. Yeah, it's an honor and a privilege for me. So I appreciate that. Well, you say that now, wait till the podcast is over, like we tell everybody. And look, the only thing when you get a bunch of cops together, you know what? First liar never stands a chance. If you tell a story, it better be a good one because somebody's going to have a bigger story. It's like the time Murph says he caught Pablo. And then another guy came in and says, I caught Pablo and El Chapo. I think that was Drew. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what they say, and it's an old cliche, right? Is uh, success has a thousand fathers and failures. An orphan. That's right. Got that, I've got right. one much simpler. If you got to toot your own horn, it ain't worth tooting, right? <laughs> there you go. Well, so just my son, who's a DC cop and he's serving in Kuwait right now, um, we were talking the other day and he goes, Dad, I don't understand. How come like 35 guys get in the picture of when someone recovers a gun? Like, what's that all about? And I go, You you know exactly what it's all about. <laughs> How long has he been a cop? Uh, he's been a cop three, a little over three years now. So oh, he's man, daddy. Yeah. He's in a hot yeah. spot in D.C. Oh, he's in the fifth. His PSA, so, you know, six and seven are the big spots in D.C. Uh, District five is kind of like on the fringe 
Um, they've got some violent areas and they got some pretty um, lower crime rate areas. But his PSA, which is 502 in D5 in the district, um, is the busiest PSA in the city. Hey, now we well, have a rule well, here. Acronyms. Got to define acronyms. What's a PSA? Police service area, um, which is kind of funny because in New York, when there was three police departments, um, the the pol- NYPD had precincts, the transit had districts, and then the housing authority had PSAs. And so what's really interesting about D.C. is instead of calling the, the smaller area sectors like the NYPD did, the D.C. cops, uh, D.C. police department, they call their districts, which is the equivalent of a precinct. And then the smaller within the district is called the PSA, which we covered in New York. So it's all the same thing. It's just different names and different flavors for different agencies and different parts of the country. Well, hey, let's get this thing started like we always do. You guys got a little bit of a primer. First of all, uh, I saw the picture of when, uh, Tommy, when you pinned on your badge on your son. That had to be, there you were in your dress uniform. I saw you in that New York dress uniform. You know, you're standing there. It had to be good. But we're going to get started by doing a couple things. First of all, Mike is hanging back there. So, Mike, you got to chime in. Say hello. Tell us where you're from. And why are you not on video today, damn it? Yeah, so uh, I work off the grid. Right. Uh, so I apologize for that. The home, the home bunker, the basement bunker uh, wrapped up with aluminum foil and stuff like that. I have no uh, cameras on my monitor. Uh, so Tommy would tell you I'm just cheap. Uh, you know, my <laughs> the company that I work for now won't give me a uh, external camera. So I'm like, hey, so be it. I'll be in the dark. I like it like that way. It's kind of like a little mysterious. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like being a mushroom. You live in the dark and they feed you shit, right? Shit. That's, <laughs> and that's one of the commands I worked in, and that was the slogan for that command. So that's that's all done. Uh, just uh, just so you know, um, I am quiet when I'm on the uh, on on the video with the uh, the good lieutenant. Um, I uh, I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, living out uh, Suffolk County now, and I also have a son on. Uh, on the job. He's uh, one year into NYPD. Hey, congrats, man. Absolutely, man. I know that makes you proud. It makes me proud. makes me nervous. Uh, again, <laughs> yeah. if, if you were to see me, you would see that the goatee I had that was uh, nice and colorful is now all gray. So I understand what the white, what I put the wife through for her 27 years. Oh, yeah. You know what they say? Gray hair, gray hair is hereditary. You get it from your kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Except my daughters. They made my hair fall out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, let's, let's do this. Let's kind of get started. And Mike, you kind of were the quiet one. We're going to start off with you. So like we do with everybody, everybody knows one of the things before we get into the stories, and trust me, folks, Mike and Tommy got some great stories. Um, we want to know a little bit about that. As we've had uh, some guests on, we want to know, how did you get involved in this thing of ours? You know, how did you get started? started so mike how did you get started being a cop was it was was it in the family blood did you have brothers sisters uncles aunts uh, doing this work uh, how did you come to be a cop not as no one in the family so uh i have no one you know as they would say as a hook or any knowledge of the job so as i was a youngster growing up in the east new york section of brooklyn um you know pretty young uh i watched my father get beat down on a uh, one day when we were walking up to a Times Square store on uh, Linden Boulevard um, and he was, we were, you know, we were attacked and uh, he was beaten down pretty bad. And I thought to myself, like, I always wanted to be the police after that point. Um, I went through high school, started a job with the New York City Parks Department right out of high school and actually took the, uh, the test in my senior year of high school. Uh, two and a half years later, 
I was uh, called by NYPD and I uh, and I went over. So that let's it. roll back a little bit. Let's talk about this. When 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 this happened in Times Square, I, I remember there was a time there where you, you didn't go down there. A lot of uh, adult shops, you know, obviously a lot of crime. Uh, let me stop you. It wasn't Times Square, so it was. And yeah, you you're gonna love the way I speak because I talk really fast. I see Tommy laughing right on the screen. I, and right now I'm flipping you the bird just so you know it. Uh, <laughs> so, so in East New York, where I grew up, was right on the border of Ozone Park. So in theory, oh, it was, sorry. Yeah, it was considered East New York, Brooklyn. So what we used to do is we used to do all our shopping down at a Times, um, right? TSS. That's what we TSS, used to do. Times Square store. Yep. Yeah, Times Square stores. They used to be on Linda Boulevard. Unfortunately for us, uh, you had to walk through the brand new Linden projects that they had put up. Uh, you know, and dad was a little old school, you know, all uh, 85 pounds of them soaking wet, uh, smoking cigarettes, uh, 30 cigarettes to walk down, 30 cigarettes to walk back. And uh, one day we just picked the wrong day to go down uh, through the basketball courts. And uh, it was an eye opening experience. It's it's something that's humbling um, and something that sticks with me. But I always said, like, I always wanted to do something because it wasn't, you know, obviously, I don't want to sound like it wasn't right. It just wasn't right. And I watched the I watched. You know, my old man, I'm a, I'm a only child. I watched my, my, uh, my dad get, you know, get beaten down. There was really nothing you could do to, to stop it. You know, how old were you at the time? I was like 10 or 11. And what year was this? Ah, man. Now you're asking me now. Well, it's pretty simple. How old are you now? You got to do math, Mike. (laughs) You you know what I mean? Here goes the embarrassment right now. Right now I'm 58 years old. So you think, so it's the late seventies. Okay. you know, middle seventies. I went into high school uh, seventy eight, graduated in eighty two. So, if that if that helps anybody, hey, you're getting better at math. Uh, no, very uh, good. and all that. You know, did those jerks ever pay for what they did? Negative. Uh, there was not even a response by uh, by the police. You know, Dad kind of brushed himself off, picked himself up, and we walked back home. And uh, you know. It was it was something the neighborhood changed. Um, the house that I grew up in was right. You know, for those probably across the country would never even understand this, but if you were in the seven five uh, precinct, the house I lived in was right next to the Grant Avenue subway station. It was my mother's mother's house, so they they were lifers in that house, uh, and we watched the neighborhood change right from out from under us. Hey, so when you said it, would you pick the wrong day to walk through that basketball court? Was it just? I mean, uh, they didn't like your looks. Uh, you know, what what was it that, if, if you remember, that provoked this whole thing? Yeah, so it was, uh, as we went through, uh, my dad saw the group waiting for us at the other end. He kind of he kind of knew. He had that sense of what was going on. Because uh, it was like a, a dead end. Sh- I don't want to say a dead end, but it was a cut through street. That was the only way you could get down there. You had to go through the basketball court. And then half the group split. Half the group ran down. That we. We couldn't get out, and then from then it was just uh, they just descended. I look at it as like a pack of wolves who saw an easy target, and then they just came forward and and did what they did. Did you get hurt at all during this? Uh, I did not. You know, I was young. I would tell you I was, you know, just just a kid, just trying to, you know, just understand it all. It, it you know, even to today, it's just. But all those years later, and you know, Tommy would tell you, like uh, it's the empathy that I got from that from being a victim. That helped you do better moving forward, you know? 
Wow. I mean, that's, uh, as you know, too, back in that day, too, things could have gone a whole lot worse. Um, we're not going to, we're going to hold off before we get into your total journey through NYPD, because I want to kind of bring Tommy into this, too, and kind of say same thing. How did you get started in this thing of ours? What uh, what led you into this other than having, being a Ute uh, in New York, fracturing a few laws? <clears throat> Well, so interesting. Um, I did. I always ha- love it when somebody starts off by going interesting because you know. <laughs> uh, I too um, did not have a legacy, although um, kind of interesting. My father was involved in the criminal justice system on, uh, as an incarcerated person, and um, I thought, hey. Um, since I know that side of it, why don't I go to the other side of it, right? Um, now, a fact, uh, my father um, grew up in the rough-and-tumble 50s in Brooklyn and got mixed up in some some trouble and took a collar. And uh, So the, the joke was that I followed the family business, but only on the good side of the criminal justice system, not the other side. Was but, it? Was it organized crime or just no, no, just your typical street thuggery, like getting into a fist fight and putting a putting a hurt on somebody? He wasn't he wasn't an offender or nothing like that. He got mixed up in in some, you know, um, bravado, if you will, and kind of put a hurting on somebody a little too hard. So we'll leave it at that. Um, but he was a very good man and um, very protective, which is kind of interesting. Um, And that might have been part of it. You know, my father never shared these stories, and I never knew it existed until after he died. And um, my uncle shared with them as as I was an adult. I didn't even know them as a kid. See, I've known you for a long time. I didn't even know that, man. Yeah. Yeah, So how old were you when this happened? Well, I wasn't born. Um, This happened in the 50s. Um, I was born in 65. So before he was even married, this happened. He was a young kid, you know. And... um, you know, I, I share it just because it didn't really have an effect one way or another because, I, like I said, I, I became a police officer and I didn't find this out until I was an adult. But it's just more about finding out your father. So um, let's just call it a, I, I fell flat on the joke. Uh, you know, the the idea that I we did have a criminal justice history, only my father was on the offender side. Now I'm on the. Uh, well, that's like the prosecution and defense, you know, being attorneys. <laughs> yeah. But um but, so then, yeah, but guy, I'm sorry, Morgan. I was going to say, so that's interesting. So when, what led you into applying for police work? And when you did, did your dad give you some advice that when you look back on it later, you realize it came from his experience? Yes, 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 yes. So great questions. Um, I, I went to a vocational high school. I loved auto mechanics. Uh, I love cars. I still love cars today um, as I'm accumulating. And while we're talking, I might bring up, bring a trailer or something like that and maybe bid on a car because there's a car I'm looking at right now. So, um, just kidding. (laughs) No, but I'm still, I'm still a car enthusiast and, um, I just wanted to be in the auto industry. And then I went to college, um, auto tech, um, New York city technical college. Um, and I realized, all right, this is not like all I'm ever really going to be is a mechanic in this space. What they were doing in college was the same they did in high school. That's a completely different path. And I had no real guidance whatsoever. And I had these, these crazy ideas and visions that I would somehow be involved in getting into, you know, the big three GM Chrysler or, and it's had nothing to do with that. Um, but I didn't know, and I didn't have good guidance. My parents didn't know any better. My father died when I was 17 in my senior year in high school. And um, so then I didn't, I was kind of off course and didn't really know what to do. So I was in college 
and my buddies uh, came up to me and said, hey, uh, we're going down to uh, the Department of Labor or whatever it was. Mike, you'd remember. We're going to file for the police exam coming up. And this was in 83. And I was like, all right. I was like, I got nothing else to do. I'll go file for the test. And, you know, if you think back of all the relatives and all these uh, neighbors that we had back in Brooklyn, too, uh, everyone was always pushing civil service, civil service, fireman, police officer, sanitation, work for the transit authority. If you do any one of those three or four things, um, you'll never be rich, but you'll never be hungry. Right. And so I was like, all right, well, my, my car dreams um, imploded. And I got nothing else to do, so I'll take this exam. And I took the exam and forgot about it. And then I get called. And then they call me. And there was three agencies at the time. There was the NYPD, the New York City Transit Authority Police Department, and the Housing Authority Police Department. So they call me and they tell me, you're going to transit. I said, okay. Is the pay different? No, it's exactly the same. Are the benefits different? No, it's exactly the same. I said, what do they do? Well, they patrol the subways. I was like, well, I've been on a train a few times. That's not so bad. I'll take it. And I took the job. What I, what I didn't know <laughs> is how much I would really truly find and love it. I had no idea before that time. So at 20 years of age, and Mike, you were 22 when you, when you got on, right? I was 20. Yeah, 20. We're both 20 years of age. Um, you know, first, which is which we can talk about. I, there's no nobody has business being a police officer at 20 years of age, in my opinion. Now, now that I know what I know, 19, 19. Well, you know, that was West Virginia there, Steve. So, you know, see, he recognized, <laughs> see, he got that right, Morgan. Murphy Morgan recognized that West Virginia. He wasn't State. talking he about the number of teeth Virginia. in your head. He was talking about how old you were at the time. <laughs> hey, Mike, you remember that that signal you had for Tommy? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. Uses that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I wound up um, going through the academy, enjoying it, and that was fine. But then once I was getting out on patrol, very much like Mike's story, I learned to very quickly have disdain for predators. And I saw the people lurking in the subways and looking for marks and robbing and, and, and stealing. And, man, I was like, I was so energized on the hunt to go after these guys. Um, and there's some females, but mostly, so mostly men and they were just predatory. So this is 1986 in the New York city subways, um, through the early nineties, uh, when the merger took place between the agencies in 93. Um, I, I just, I found a, you found really, a calling. I found the calling of really looking and saying, you know, to myself, and again, let's go back to what I was saying about my father. My father was a very good guy, and I had nothing but wonderful experiences with him. Um, and he was very protective, extremely protective. And I feel I got that gene. And to this day, my wife says the same thing. You know, you're always looking to take care and make sure everyone's taken care of and stuff like that. And it's just, I don't know if it was always there and it came out in the transit police or if I learned it in the transit police. Um, but I love the job. I love the profession profession. And I don't think there's any more noble profession, uh, where it's the hardest job in the world. They give you the least amount of help and support and resources to do 
the toughest job there is. And I don't think there's anything more noble. And I would not change a thing, not one minute of it. So Tommy wasn't kidding about being protective with him. when him and his wife came up to meet me and my wife at Veritas. Remember, you guys came up for dinner. Tommy, first of all, he did is he frisked me, put me up against the wall, searched the room, uh, cleared the staff, and then he allowed Susan to come in. That's how well, protective Tommy is. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem is when, you, when you're frisking Morgan, he said, I'll give you 30 minutes to quit. <laughs> Exactly. Like exactly. you said, <laughs> right? I should. I hopefully I recorded that part too. We'll see. But uh, hey, well, let's let's rewind real quickly between the two of you, Tommy and Mike. How far apart were you guys in terms of joining uh, in <clears throat> NYPD? Were you guys come on the same year, different years? Mike preceded me by six months. He's six months ahead of me, so he is technically the senior NYPD officer on this call right now. Better looking, smarter. Yeah, you know, it's pretty much the whole way. Oh, yeah. we don't know because you're not on video. We're no, just going to have to take yeah, work for it. No, I'm telling you. I'm telling yeah, you. He can't prove that. Question. He can't prove that. There's whatever, reasonable doubt. There is reasonable doubt right now. Whatever mental picture you draw, I'm in. I, I just wanted to tell you something just real quick, just because, you know, Tommy, I came on January 85. So it's funny, right? Not knowing anything other than you wanted to be a cop. And I just want to piggyback off of Tommy's story about like the three different agencies. I had an old school 30-year veteran investigator, right, who was from the housing police. And I worked for the city, but you know what? If you if this guy, and you know, you got to remember, there was no cell phones back then, right? So I was the parky, like the uh, park maintenance guy at Wingate High School in Brooklyn. I had no car because my father was like, well, you're not going to get a car because we're not going to insure it. I'll lose the house, the whole nine years. That's a whole different story. I'm still trying to rectify that in my head. But anyway, so I used to take a couple of buses back and forth. Well, this investigator would call me up, you know, at the parks department and say, listen, I need you down here by seven o'clock with a photocopy of your birth certificate. And I'd be like, well, I'm at work. Can I just come down in uniform? And he'd be like, Son, do you want this job? You go home and put a suit on. So like the good guy, took two buses home, put my graduation suit on, my communion suit, and then took two trains down to uh, Broadway, down, downtown uh, Lower Manhattan. 346. 346 Broadway. I would go upstairs and see him, and he'd be like, hey, you know what? I got that piece of paper. You, you, know, you really didn't even need to come down. Oh. <laughs> so... So then we get the call. So now we're going into the academy. Oh, we're going to get our assignment. He calls me up and he goes, come down here. We're giving out, you know, your, 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 where you're going to go. I walk in. He goes, you're going to transit. I go, transit? What's, you know, same thing as time. Like, what's that? He's like, eh, you got screwed. You mustn't know anybody. You're going to transit. Okay, no problem. I, I go to the elevator. He calls me back. Pray, pray. And he, he never ran for nothing. I went back. He goes, I made a mistake. My eyesight's bad. You're going to housing. And I was like, housing? What's that? He goes, ah, you're going to stand in the piss in the, in the housing project. How could he get housing and transit mixed up? They look totally different written on a page. So funny. At the end of it, I go down in the elevator, and I'm, I'm actually walking out of there. I don't know if I'm crying or like tears of happiness, tears of being scared, tears of being like, what just happened to me? And I get off the elevator, and like it's like a magician. He's there. And he goes, ah, I'm really old. You're going to NYPD. Pats me on the back and says, good luck, son. He goes, I retire in two weeks. Good luck. And I in was the like, space of one elevator ride, you went from transit to housing to NYPD. Congrats, man. And I couldn't even explain it to my parents when I got home. They were like, I was like, 
what? So, it, right, Tommy? That's that's how it was. And my oh, yeah. my investigator loved my parents because I was uh, I was working since I was like fourteen, so I had no issues. When he used to come out to the house, he only came out there for my mother's cooking. So that's hilarious. They used to call them the um, the home visits, yeah, and they used to check and supposed to talk to your neighbors and make sure you're a good kid and all that kind of stuff. But the things that I think what Mike brings up is a really interesting point is in today's day and age, we're recruiting these kids to come on the job and they are bending over backwards. And if Mike wanted that job back in 83, 84, 85, and I wanted that job, we did exactly what they said. We went home, we shaved, we got a haircut, we put the suit on and we went back there and we showed up with respect and you said yes sir no sir and the guy even looked at you wrong and you were like you would snap it you wouldn't even think of complaining that this guy's busting my hump and trying to make me jump through hoops to get this job and and you should feel like you have to jump through hoops to get the job because we shouldn't just take anybody you know and you should want it you should want to show up and say i do want to do this job to the best of my ability and and i'm going to do whatever it takes and um I, I don't think that's happening today. You fast forward a couple of years, and I got hurt pretty bad on the job, and and I went to. Uh, hey, well, let's. Hey, Mike, let's let's put a, a let's put a placeholder in that. I'm going to make a note of that about getting hurt. What I want to do is before we get too far ahead, let's kind of roll back and talk about. I, I'm very interested in a lot of people. We've talked to a lot of guys, the academies they go through, guys and girls, the things that are different. So let's before we get into that, Mike, let's talk a little bit. Tell us a little about when you came on. What was the academy like? What did you do? Um, you know, just give us a sense for what it was like during that, during that time to be on the NYPD and going through their academy. So what I, what I remember most is we put a pretty big class in and we shifted, uh, days and nights. We rotated days and four to twelves. And then we had the two day, three day swings, uh, in between that. Um, if, if I remember that correctly, what I remember is, um, the, 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 the instructors I had were absolutely phenomenal, right? Um, were absolutely phenomenal. Um, what I do remember is the guys who came from, quote, unquote, East Cupcake, Long Island. <laughs> so is that I a real just, place? Uh, it, it sure is. To the instructors, it was. It was a magical place. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of snowflakes coming out of there. Is that what you're saying? You got that right. So it's funny. So I used to take one train to get into the academy and, you know, no matter what time I left or whatever, I was always home. You know what I mean? Well, once the instructors found out there was a lot of guys from Long Island in your class and you were doing four to twelves, uh, the last train out of Penn Station was like the 1155 for all the Long Island guys. Then you had to wait. It ran every hour on the hour. So they would muster you up in the hallway to just enough time that you would never make the train and then dismiss you. So I used to bring all these guys from Long Island home to my mother's house. <laughs> they would sleep on the floor. They would sleep on the couch. You know, my mother would do their wash real quick for them. You know, it, it was kind of like crazy. That part of it was the fun part. Um, what I remember, and again, you got to remember, I'm truly a baby. Like I'm 19 years old, right? Like, I'm not going to say I didn't do foul stuff when I was younger, 14 to, to 19. Who does it? I mean, right. come on. But I was, I was shocked. I was the whole military structure of it all. I, you know, the breaking ranks out on the muster deck, the whole, the whole paramilitary uh, idea, the first trimester. I mean, the, the instructors I had were really good. 
They were they were they were excellent. We had one bad instructor who taught law. Our whole class failed the law section on our first trimester, and they brought in this old school lieutenant who was actually able to apply law to real school. Like she had a year on the job when she was teaching us. So she had no practical, she couldn't explain the difference between assault one and assault two, except through the definition of, of the penal law. But this this first lieutenant would come in, uh, this new lieutenant would come in, and it was totally different. We ended up being the highest scoring class uh, in there, Lieutenant Shea. He was phenomenal. And I, I loved everything about it, man. I, I, I mean, How long you, was your academy? Six months. Wow. And you, 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 no requirement to stay. I mean, obviously they didn't have a place to put you guys up. So you went back home every night and then came back the next day. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You would come. So it was kind of funny, right? Cause you were encouraged not to drive. You were encouraged to take your silly PPO, right? Probationary police officer uniform, which a big black bag and go on the public transportation. Um, if you parked your car, you had to park, right, Tommy? There was, you know, guys were parking hundreds of miles away, it seemed like, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, now, wait a minute. Why did they want you to dress in a uniform? I'm assuming at that time, did were you even issued a firearm? Negative. Nope. So they wanted you in uniform on public transportation of where there's a lot of shit going on that Tommy's going to tell us about. And you're supposed to do what? Get your ass beat and your PPO, carrying your black bag? I could tell you some funny stories, you know? <laughs> <laughs> What you're like? Is that guy masturbating in the in the train? Like, and there's people like you guys stop that guy. And we're like, yeah, what? you guys got to take action. <laughs> that way, yep. you really got to hand it to the guy. He did it in public. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh my god! So, so um, while you were wearing this uniform, going back and forth, was it just stuff like that, or did you get into a point to where there was something actually real legitimate? Some, uh, you know. Uh, big act of violence or some life-threatening type of thing that happened while you were uh, in uniform? So I, I, I don't know how to say this. We had an instructor. His name was Deep Pasquale. He was our social science instructor. So he was going to teach us all about the social sciences of life, right? And the, the one story he sh- shared with us is he was a transit cop. He came outside, and this is how he, he shared it to the cops, and hopefully this doesn't go on too long. But he, he comes up from the hole, because that's what they used to call where the transit police covered the hole, in front of uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. And somebody screams to him, officer, help us. It's a Sunday morning. He goes to St. Patrick's Cathedral, and there is a machete-wielding man uh, going through St. Patrick's Cathedral. Well, Officer De Pasquale doesn't say I'm transit and goes back in the hole. He goes and he takes action. And he goes, the only way I could subdue this guy back back then was I blasted him in the head with my nightstick on the altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral. As he's dragging the guy out the front door of the you know of St. Patrick's Cathedral on Sunday with all the church goers there, somebody from a newstaker newspaper takes a picture of him. And he said the first call when I came home, he goes, when I came home at the end of the day, my mother was sitting saying the rosary because she believed I had beaten someone up in the church and that I was going to go to hell. He goes, so I advise you guys to make really good decisions. <laughs> he goes, and just remember, you're not the fucking police. That's And that was his whole thing. You're not the fucking police. Don't get involved in anything. You know, keep your head down and move through it. Go from point A to point B. <laughs> And that's, I swear to God, that was the best advice ever from that guy. 
So I don't know if that makes sense or if that was... Oh, no, that, that's... But, you know, it's interesting because the way that New York cops think about stuff is different than how L.A. thinks about it or Chicago and stuff. So it's always interesting hearing about that stuff. So what about you, Tommy? Let's talk about you getting into the academy. What, what uh, Did you go to the same place Mike did? Yeah, same exact place, um, just behind him. Um, we did, I remember specifically, so Mike, I didn't know if you rotated your days off or not. We did um, Monday to Fridays, uh, a week of day tours and a week of four to twelves. Uh, no midnights, no weekends. Our class was small enough that the, they were able to handle that. I want to say our class was around 17, 1800 uh, people. <laughs> Wait a so, minute. Hold on. Yes. That's, that's a small that's class? That's that correct. Is... No, the biggest one was over well over 2,000. Yeah. It was... Where do you put everybody? Yeah, bro, 35,000. And then with the two other agencies, I think they maxed out during Safe City, Safe Streets, um, almost 40,000 cops in total between the three agencies. Yeah, but when you're going through the academy, where do you put 1,700 people? You rotate them. So you got so you got a bunch of people. So we had an academy. Our our police academy at the time uh, was on Twentieth Street um, and Third Avenue, and um, half would be there, half would be off duty, and then of that half, some would be at the pistol range up in the Bronx. Some would be at Drivers Academy um, in um, Floyd Bennett Field, Brooklyn, doing uh, police academy driver training. Wait a minute. How how is driver training in New York City? Do you just put a bunch of taxis and pedestrians out there and you go real slow? I mean, what? Honestly, <laughs> honestly, being a car guy, that was probably the most fun I ever had. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. my god, those uh, those the, evac the, courses. It, yeah, the emergency vehicle operations courses. Yeah, well, you would know, yeah. trooper. You would know, trooper. Fucking a. See, Murphy thinks all I do is change tires. Well, hey, can, he was- I, can I ask if every trooper tells the same joke? Well, you can ask it. I don't know what the joke is. I've got more time in triple digits than you got on the job. Something like that. No, I don't think I ever said that. I had a Maryland trooper tell me that. He said, I got more times doing over 100 miles an hour than you got on your entire job. Oh, jeez. My first first patrol car, I was lucky if I could get into triple digits. And the only way I did that is I'd get going down a really steep hill, and hopefully by the end of it, I could break 100. And I want to make sure Morgan gets credit for, you know, being a trooper because not only did he change tires, but he'd bring you gas if you ran out. Just give him a call. (laughs) (laughs) You're so so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't don't feed don't feed into this, Tommy. Well, we all we all think about troopers. Yeah. Hey, just remember to not only a trooper, detective. We we have to get that in there. <laughs> By the way, Tommy was. Uh, I don't know if you uh, helped me or uh, just you were just on the board, but uh, he's on the board of the uh, International Homicide Investigators Association, of which I'm a member of. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so anyway. Small yeah. world. Back, back to the academy. Yeah, it back is. Our we're regularly scheduled podcast. For those of you drinking, we have a drinking game now. When I say, <laughs> but I digress, or back to our regularly scheduled podcast, it's time for a drink. So there's drink number one, folks. There you you go. guys will probably be drunk by the time this is over. <laughs> <laughs> we digress a lot. Yes. Okay, Tommy, fire away. Uh, so back in the academy, um, I, very similar to Mike, I also had a couple of um, instructors that were very good, some that were not so good. Um, based on the time on the job, the actual real practical experience that they had. And if I can just shoot over a little bit, I will tell you that my son at in D.C. shared with me 
that he thought the world of his instructors. And I said, in this day and age, and what they do in DC is they allow their instructors to retire and then they come back and then they teach them, which I think is brilliant. My son loved, and I mean loves, loves his, like he speaks affectionately of them. Uh, so anyway, so back to ours, um, you know, we had this situation where in New York at that time, uh, they were allowing what we used to call, you know, two-year, three-year wonders to come back into the academy and teach. It's like they don't even know the job themselves. How are they going to, you know, teach these kids the right way? But, you know, you figure it out and you listen and you gravitate towards the more senior officers. And you're like, yeah, I'm listening to that guy or that woman, not that guy and not that gal, you know. And um, I had a positive experience really well. I mean, you kind of chomping at the bit to get out. But. But while it's happening, you're having a blast, you're learning, you're going through it, um, you're meeting friends that you, again, you know them forever, and you, I still communicate with them. And thankfully, living in Virginia with social media, it really helps to stay connected. I think if, you know, pre-social media, if I was down here in Virginia, I'd probably be isolated and alone and maybe a phone call here or there. But yeah, we, we know what everybody's doing now. Uh, which is wonderful. So 36 years later, we're still in contact and still have a lot of love for each other and appreciation for where we've all ended up. Um, the Academy was good. Uh, same thing. Um, we drove, we parked underneath the East side uh, highway overpass and had to walk a mile to, to get because uh, the parking was bad. So it was a grind every day. Um, you know, no sleepover or nothing. So you're, commuting and the commute in New York city is terrible. So, you know, your eight hour days are really 12 hour days just on, you know, eight hours and then four hours commuting two each way, you know? Um, but it was great, man. And, and then we couldn't get out, but what I will say, and I'm very proud of and very happy of is that the New York city transit police did not let you go right out on patrol. They came and I am not joking. They told us Everything you learned in tactics from the NYPD, forget you want about to forget. It. Right. <laughs> forget about it. We're going to teach you guys how to take somebody into custody. And again, you know, not encouraging for use of force, only use it when it's appropriate and legal and all that stuff. However, we believe that the tactics that were taught to you in the NYPD are not the most effective tactics. And as long as we're going to teach you what we're going to teach you is in the confines of the law, we're going to do that. We're not taking, they were woke on tactics in 1985, right? And so, and I'll give you a perfect example. They taught us with a two-handed hold on the nightstick that it was a lust forward, two hands, pull it back, and then a swing with the the butt end of the of the baton or the nightstick. The transit police recruits told us that you keep your distance and you hold that stick and you swing it in an X pattern looking to hit the collarbones of your suspect, not the head, to hit the collarbone and you'll take them out. Or you swing in a sweep and you take out a, an ankle or a knee. Nothing in the, you know, the extremities. And so they retaught us tactics. And we actually fist fought with boxing gloves in the transit academy. And the reason for a lot of that was, is A, they had a different approach, but also what they didn't tell you until after it was too late is that you work by yourself, you walk by yourself in the subway, no dual patrol, no partner, and the radios, they work about 50% of the time. 
So you are uh, in 1985, and maybe even to this day, and I'll let the kids talking today talk, you know, I'll let the kids working today talk about what their experience is. But 1985, I walked a lot of subway platforms and a lot of subway stations and did a lot of train patrols, and I really didn't know when I could ever count on my radio. So it was take care of business and be strong and, and, and be in control of a scene or you were going to get hurt. Hey, Damn. when you started, did you guys have the powder blue um, shirts? Yes. yes. What if, is, we've had a discussion about that, too, because a lot of times it was, uh, you know, you hear the stories. It's supposed to make you softer and gentler and easier to approach. But did it, in fact, and sometimes actually invite problems because you looked you didn't look authoritative enough? The powder blue kind of made you look like a Long Island cupcake. <laughs> my opinion is, is I, we used to say uh, you look like auto mechanics, you know, and uh, we thought that they look like auto mechanics. And that was the joke that I was always hearing. Yeah, I, I never liked the powder blues. And they also had these terrible duty jackets that literally were like draped over you. And they literally covered your 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 um, gun belt and your gun and not, not the waist. Um, and I'm not a uniform expert. I don't know all the terminology, but you know how you got the shorter jackets now. And they go up to the waist, and then your belt is exposed and outside. They had jackets that literally cut Mike and my lion. The, the duty jackets covered all of your equipment. And the reason I'm not on video is because when I came into the academy, I was a buck 25. <laughs> so I couldn't even get all the gear. Um, what does so that you have could, to do with you not being on video? Yeah, because now I'm like, uh, I don't know, 245. Uh, <laughs> never tie hungry, cold, or wet. <laughs> I embrace that. You know, I, I'll just tell you something, right? So, you know, for me, the biggest thing in the academy, I, I tell the story to everybody, but I can't swim. And to get through the academy, you had to go in the academy pool and qualify. So the first thing that the gym instructors do, and again, I know the terminology and the wording of today isn't appropriate, but they go, who are the retards that can't swim? And then, you know, you put your hand up in the air and they were like, okay, and they put the buoy vest on you, and you became the perpetual victim for everyone else to go out and rescue. <laughs> so, like, that's a good thing. In Instructor Washington was like this massive bodybuilder, and he would throw you into the center of the pool, and then all your classmates would come out, and they'd rescue you, and the dog swim or whatever. Well, let me tell you this. We also had these giant mats that they put down in the academy to simulate ice. So you would crawl out on the mat to the end of the mat, and it would simulate ice. So I'm getting ready to go out. I'm going to be the first guy out there. I go to put the jacket on. He goes, Prate, you're on the mat, dude. Come on now. You're not, you're not going in the water. I'm like, okay. I shimmy out there. Next thing you know, there was a, 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 one of the female officers in my academy. She was a little heavy. She's got my ankle. She can't swim either. She ends up where the mat split. <laughs> oh, that oh. shit split. She goes down. She's locked. She's got the death grip on my ankles, right? And I'm kicking her like a Harley. I'm trying to jump start her up. Bam, <laughs> right? And I got the other edge, and the whole mat flips over, and we go under the water. It's pitch black, and we sink right to the bottom. Two of us. And here comes investigate. You know, uh, instructor Washington, fully clothed, in there to rescue both of us. And he goes, you guys, I should figure out the academy just for this. <laughs> I mean, the, 
So the, my partner who was on my ankles, she came up. I almost broke her eye socket with the kicking because I was so petrified we were going deep into the deep end. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was the scariest part of the whole thing in the academy. Well, did you ever qualify, though, for swimming? Did you ever have to get out there and swim, or were you just the rescue? I am a perpetual barber. <laughs> a what? A, a barber. barber. What's a barber? Bar- 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 you get your hair I just bob in the barber? water. Okay. I'm a, just a barber. Like barber. a, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, hey, now let's fast forward a little bit too, because I, I'm not I'm, I'm not going to bypass what you talked about getting injured. But when you first got out, Mike, what was your what was your you know where were you stationed at? What type of work did they have you doing once you graduated the academy? And by the way, how many guys and girls? How many did you start off with? If you remember, and how many did you end up with? How many graduated? Uh, we had a big class. Uh, we were we were over a thousand, um, and and our number was pretty good. We lost maybe. You know, 15, 25 maybe in the academy, from what I remember. Again, multiple different tours were doing it. I believe there were three squads that were rotating back and forth at that point. But um, the day comes that you put your dream sheet in, and then uh, the instructor up the front calls everybody up. So then he's calling people up. They're going to the you know Midtown South. They're going to Queens. And he calls me up, and he goes, Preet, you're going to NSU 14. And I go, and issue 14, where's that? He goes, well, son, it's where the people with no hooks go. <laughs> <laughs> well, he goes, at least he was honest. <laughs> and he turns me around to the class and goes, nobody needs to call Prate because he doesn't know anybody. So <laughs> and issue 14, Neighborhood Stabilization Unit 14, that, that turned out of the 7-9. We covered the 7-9, 7-7, And um, what we did was uh, we had three veteran detectives or FTOs, um, you know, that were there. Um, one guy did, uh, you when you were with him, you went out and you did uh, traffic enforcement. The other guy, you rode a sector in, in Sector Charlie in the 7-7. The other guy was kind of like the all-purpose car. And then if you weren't assigned to a car, you went out on foot post in one of these, you know, one of these two places. So just to give you an idea, I born and raised in Brooklyn my entire life. My dad finally comes, takes a ride with me on a Sunday morning, driving into the 7-9. All the people are going to church. The neighborhood looks nice. It's nice and quiet. Monday night, I do a 4 to 12, and I end up on Nostrand and Pacific. I had a pocket full of quarters, and I called my dad from a payphone, and I said, I don't know what happened, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only white guy out here on the corner. <laughs> like, I don't, there's got to be 10,000 people out who's, I mean, it, it's crazy. The whole thing was crazy. Uh, it really was. Um, it, it, it was, it was eye-opening. It was, it was crazy. You talked about your wish list. So kind of like, you know, what, what, what would you call it? What kind of list was it where you wanted yeah, a, a dream sheet or a wish, sheet? wish list? Where did you want to go? I had no idea. Like, I don't even remember what I put down. I think I put down Midtown South, you know, all the places I would never, ever go to, you know? What, why, why not? Because they, I didn't have a hook. So, like, I didn't know any better, right? So, like, to me, I was just happy to be there, right? And then when he said that to me, I was like, because I spent my whole career there. I never left. Once I went there in 85, like, I pretty much stayed my entire career in, in that one square mile. You know, well, and 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 where was that located at again, Mike? That's the uh, so the seven nine is the Bedford Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. So, so if you're thinking of like you know, a lot of people know where Times Square is anyway. But if you're thinking about that, 
where's that located from uh, Times Square? It's a place you'd never want to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that narrows it down. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, thought, so, I always thought that was Jersey. <laughs> well, that's, oh, that's true, too. Yeah, that's true, too. Um, uh, it, it's hard to explain. To, uh, Tommy, help me describe it better. I mean, it's back in the day. So the neighborhood changed, right? It used to be all Italian and Polish, uh, and then it changed over. Um, and the neighborhood was... Uh, it was it was really built up of housing projects. That, that's that's the main thing that made the seven nine to seven nine. There was all these big housing projects, and it it really was. I mean, crazy. Uh, I was out a week, so just to give you an idea, and not just the seven nine, but the seven seven two, because that's where Tommy did did his some of his squad time. I was on a I was on a foot post one week into the job. Some young kid with a dog came up to me on the corner of Troy and Lincoln Place. We were talking. He was making fun of me because my stuff was all shiny. He was asking me how I fit all that stuff on my gun belt because I was so thin. You know, just just the usual jiving with the people in the community. There was a car accident down the block. I shook his hand. I walked down the block. I no sooner get down. And again, this is only half a block away. No sooner got down the block than I heard the gunshots. Two, three, four. I go back up the block, and that kid was the victim of a robbery. They shot him twice in the head and left him straight there in the sidewalk. And that, that is something, like even today telling you the story, and I know you can't see my face, but that is something today. I remember exactly how he's laying. I remember his sneakers were missing. You know, back in the day, you know, you got to think late 80s uh, or, or like 85, 86. They were taking sneakers off of everybody. And uh, his dog was just sitting there, and it was uh, it was it was crazy. And to this day, I remember that um, like like it happened yesterday. Do you th- do you think there's any chance that people saw him talking to you and thought, well, hell, he's snitching out to the cops? You know, I, maybe that block was, and Tommy can talk about it too. That, that Lincoln Place and Troy, that was that was crazy. Um, it was just crazy. But the brazenness of it all, right, um, was was what really shook me and. Uh, Yo, he had a pretty big pit bull, um, and that dog was just docile. So, kind of, yeah. Troy and Lincoln. Um, so in so remember when I was talking about in transit and you were on single patrol, maybe a radio, maybe not. Um, the NYPD mostly works in sectors. In when so when you're in a police cruiser, um, what we used to call RMPs, radio motor patrols, um, you have a partner. There are some assignments that you're single patrol, but it's very rare. You, anytime you're handling a sector, you're in dual patrol. Lincoln and Troy, the intersection that Mike is talking about, was so violent that they had in the communication section a trigger and a flag that if there were any jobs at that intersection, that they had to send at least two cars and four cops to every single job at that intersection. Wow. Wow. Man, I just pulled that up on Google Maps, you know, taking a look at it, then looking at the area where it's at in Brooklyn. And yeah, I mean, you can see a um, lot of small businesses around there, it looks like, you know, a lot of housing in that area. What 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 made it so violent, though, Tommy? You know, what was it? Was it was it crack? Was it dope? What what, what was making it so violent at that time? Yeah, so I, I think I have a, a slightly not different, but a little bit more um, some perspective on bed and I want to answer it 
to, to help you out. So if you're looking at a map of Manhattan and it's right in the middle and Times Square is right in the middle, if you go directly south and a little bit east of there into the over the bridges of Manhattan or Brooklyn bridges or through the tunnels uh, and you end up in the borough of Brooklyn, figure the northern end of that Brooklyn section right in the middle. So it's not on the water. It's not it doesn't run up against any of the rivers and it's kind of right in there. And if you really go back to the turn of the century of 1900s, uh, 20th century, um, it was a transitioning neighborhood of a lot of immigrants and African-Americans all integrated into each other. And there was a very rich history. So the, the, the buildings are brownstones and they're gorgeous. I mean, these buildings are amazing and they're rich in history. Um, Every, you know, there are 13, 14 room houses. Every room's got a fireplace. Uh, the woodwork is ornate and, and just the level of craftsmanship, craftsmanship is beyond anyone's belief. So as the neighborhood started to degrade, um, the, anyone who didn't really own any of those houses or, or such uh, and were just they, – they got out because the scourge of drugs did start to permeate into the community. And once that happened – and then as Mike said, a couple of these lots that were available, the housing authority got these great ideas. Now, I'm not an expert on housing and public housing um, – um, but what I do know from talking to my friends in Chicago and what I know in New York, they'll never build another high-rise housing development ever again. They put these things 26, 28, 30 stories on top of each other, and they crammed in a lot of people at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. And, you know, they're, they're people who are struggling, and not to say that not, a lot of them are great. Some of them are wonderful, wonderful people, hardworking people, family-oriented um, and and I struggle with them feeling bad and kind of really kind of touching with them because they can't get out. They don't have the means to get out, right? They know they don't want to be there and they don't like it. And that's why, you know, with all the talk with the African-American community and policing and defunding, Pew came out with a, a survey a couple, two years ago, where 82% of the African-American community wants more policing. Like, so all of that is debunked. All of that is garbage. These these people were proud in this community. The African-American and um, Hispanic communities um, who were on this lower socioeconomic, they wanted to get up and, and rise up, right? But then you bring in the drugs and you bring in the housing developments into these places. And then who knows what the science, the experiment is that failed so badly, but a very proud and a very, very, upper middle class neighborhood became the worst one square mile you could ever possibly have imagined in New York City. And 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 Mike they have a term, you know, it's 1.1 square mile and the amount of violence and the amount of crimes that occurred within that one square mile with about 40 to 50,000 people squeezed into one square mile you can only imagine. So it is pretty wild. Um, and the level of violence and the level of brutality was just unbelievable. Truly, truly unbelievable. Because my mother, would she would follow my career through the newspapers 
And anytime she saw something that made the news that said Bedford Stuyvesant community, she would ask, are you involved in this? Do you know anything about it? And sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't, whatever. And I would, I would tell her the backstory on what we think happened or what is purported to happen. And she's like, no, come on. Why do you speak in hyperbole like that? Why are you like, people don't do that. And I'm like, mom, I'm sorry to say they do. You know, my mom, my mother came to an awards dinner one night. Um, when I actually, when I was a state trooper, I was getting an award and, uh, you know, they bring in the Kansas peace officers and the Kansas association of chiefs of police. And she never fully appreciated, I think what was going on until they actually read out the award citation. And they said, this is what went on. And she looked at me one time, she goes, I didn't really want to know that, you know, I, I and I think our parents came from a different time frame. Uh, just amazing. Hey, let's do this before we get too much farther. And give us a uh, Tommy, you, you, you're on a roll there. So give us a breakdown. So when we're talking about, um, NYPD and the precincts, you know, as, as it stands now, how many precincts are we talking about? How big, uh, you know, how many precincts does New York have? Um, so at that time, I'm getting a little sound back. Is that good? Uh, at that time, 75 precincts throughout the city, um, each borough. So there's five boroughs in New York city of which of those two boroughs are, are broken into a North and a South. Brooklyn was Brooklyn North and Brooklyn South. Manhattan was Brooklyn North, Brooklyn, um, I'm sorry, Manhattan North, Manhattan South. Then there was the Borough of Queens, the Borough of Bronx, and the Borough of Staten Island. And those were patrol boroughs. So those are now broken down into precincts. There was 10 precincts within the confines of Brooklyn North and another 12 in Brooklyn South. There might be, you know, break them up 10 or 12 in each of the other boroughs and, and you're, you're up to about 75 precincts. The largest precinct is either the 105, 75 is pretty big, but the 105 is really big. It might be 13, 14 square miles uh, compared to a midtown Manhattan precinct. Like um, the 10th might be like 0.75 square miles. And you have a tiny, tiny area like the 10th, the ninth precinct, also small on the east side, lower east side. Then you have Brooklyn precincts like um, the seven nine seven 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 three. Uh, they're all about one one and a half square miles, uh, and then you have everything in between three, four, five, six square miles each is probably the more of the average. Um, the volume of calls. Let me let me give you in nineteen ninety nine. When I got there, when you're a patrol cop, you don't know these, but I was a commander coming into um, the the back back to the precinct in the seven nine in 1999, and when I got there, here's the stats: 1.1 square mile, approximately 50,000 people living there, 5,000 robberies, 35 murders, and over 100 non-fatal shootings. People shot. 1999. That's not even the busiest time it ever was. 10 years before that, it was twice as busy. And people say to me, those numbers are incalculable. They can't be true. And I defy anybody. Pull up 1990 stats from the NYPD for the 79 precinct. And those were the numbers. And the reason why I know those numbers by heart is because it went to a process called CompStat. Oh, yeah. And I had to report on those numbers every 28 days. And I got the, 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 the scars and the marks and the bruises to prove it and the broken bones because I got my ass kicked. Well, what, 
we'll talk about Comstat a little bit later because that that is a unique thing in and of itself. Let's roll back a little bit though, Mike. Let's talk about you. Like I said, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna forget about you. Um, let's talk about getting on the job. You said two years in, you got hurt kind of bad. Set us some context. What happened? Yeah, so I had got um, I was working midnights in the seven nine. Um, you know, um, my career had progressed. Came out of FDU, was in in, uh, in um, patrol, and I went through the windshield of a radio car in uh, an accident. Um, when I say went through, my head went through the windshield. We hit a car broadside. I blame my partner because he was looking the wrong way. But who, you know, listen, it, we are where we are now. But uh, I spited the windshield, no airbag deployment. And then we went further on down the block because I couldn't get my foot off the gas. And we went through the fire hydrant. We took that out and then we took out the telephone pole. So I spited it actually twice. But what that what that did was um, it put me on restrictive duty, um, uh, modified assignment actually, where I had to work at applicant investigation. And just like at the beginning of the call when Tom was talking about, it, I worked a security desk, and there it, it had changed. I had a little more than two years on when this happened, but the recruits that came into um, applicant investigation, they were coming in in a t-shirt and jeans. Like to beat their investigator. Now, I don't know about you guys, right? But um, I'm old school. If I had to tie, baby. If I had to wear that shit, you had to wear that shit. But the one day the guy comes in, he goes, uh, he's got the F the police shirt on with the cop in the uh, Republic Enemy shirt with the cop in the crosshairs. And he's like, yeah, I'm here to see my investigator. And I'm like, well, nah, dude, you got to be in business tire. And he was like, nah, man, I don't have to be in business tire. She told me just to come in. This place is, he told me it was all dirty. So she told me I didn't have to get my suit dirty. Anyway, I sent him on his way. 25 minutes later, the uh, investigator comes up and says, where's my client <laughs> that I was expecting? I'm like, I told her what he was wearing. And she's like, yeah, but I told him to dress down. And I was like, that, that can't happen. Seven and three. I was seven and three quarter extra long oval. Or seven and five eighths. Wow, that is a big head. Sorry, I don't folks. know. If it's a big... We had a slight technical glitch because Tommy went, went staticky on us. We had to do, and then in the meantime, we're comparing head sizes. I mean, cranium sizes. Yeah. So. Yeah, this is, we're going down how quickly here, everybody. Yeah. So where we were at when we were, um, uh, so as we get back to our regularly scheduled podcast, that's uh, drinking game break number two. Um, Mike, you were telling us too. So you had you'd hit the windshield a couple times. You'd spidered it. Um, you were doing the applicants. Um, before we go too far down, when you say you were, how how bad were your injuries? Were you hospitalized for a while? Um, what happened to you as a result of the accident? Yeah, so if you know anything about the NYPD, we have district surgeons that take care of us, um, and they're uh, they're absolutely a mess. So uh, so I went back to work the next day. I had like a severe concussion, some cutting up on the top of the head, uh, dizziness, the whole nausea. You know, I was I was pretty banged out, but. The district surgeon wanted to see me the next day. So I had somebody from the precinct drive me in. He looked at me and he said, you look okay. I'm going to put you back to full duty. So basically you had a heartbeat and a and breath and you were good to go. That's pretty much how that it was worked. the criteria. Yep. And then I went back out in his waiting room. I used the secretary's phone and I called in sick again. So, you know, he, he was quite agitated. So then they put, uh, I had a pretty bad uh, concussion. I had some, uh, I've, I lost a little vision up in the upper quadrant of my left eye. So like anything high, uh, let's say above, as you move your hand down, I, I lost a little vision in there. Um, not enough to take you out. Uh, no, 
as the job would say, no uh, spinal compression on the nerves, not enough to be a three quarter injury, just enough to be annoying for the rest of your life. You know, so I was out. I, I was out for light duty for about eight months. Man, and you still deal with that? Some of those effects today, you say? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had. Yeah, absolutely. At the end, you know, it's going to be funny because I, I know there's a whole bunch of studies um, just on the guys who are who are taking their own life. But now they're starting to look at the concussions that law enforcement has taken uh, over the years. Um, and I had a I had a pretty good amount of those. So, you know, you just uh, it's interesting along the way, you know, and how the job treated you when you were hurt. And, you know, kind of the whole thing is kind of crazy. Wow. You guys had your own surgeons. Basically, they were just a, a mill just to get you back out there. It's like, w- what did it take to actually get off, um, you know, to be actually put on <laughs> a sick leave or restricted duty? Did you have to lose an arm or a leg or be shot or what? I'll be honest with you. I knew a guy in the 7-7 got shot in the face, and uh, they only kept him out for four months and then uh, wanted to return him to full duty. You can't even believe it. If, if you tell the stories, you can't believe it. So I just want to clarify something. You did get treated by either a hospital and you get your own doctor, but everything that you did on your own, you would have to go see the district surgeon that were employees of the police department. And they would say, yes, that's true. Or they would say, no, I don't agree with them. They're saying you should stay out. We disagree. We're ordering you back to work. And then that's why Mike said, you know, he's ordering me back to work. I just went back outside and called in sick again, said I'm, I'm hurt again a recurrence of an original injury. So it's just, it, it was a game. It was a game is really what it boiled down to. Man, sad. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, but kind of finishing up your story. So you send this, uh, this youth who's in a, at the police t-shirt um, and his, uh, his recruiter wants to know where he's at. How did that, what, what ended up as a result of that, uh, Mike, you hard case you? I can't believe you sent a guy away just simply because he was dressed in a T-shirt and dirty jeans, said F the police, and he wants a cop job. Come on. Come on. Narrow-minded dude, you. Tommy, you did your applicant. You did applicant time, right? At 150 in Jamaica? Yep, 1514 Jamaica Avenue. So I was at 150 in Jamaica when it was under construction. So it was going to be the new police lab. So anyway, that that civilian investigator uh, was highly offended that we would send this young man home. Um, And... uh, you know, had a talking to from the uh, from the sergeant and the lieutenant who used to run the security detail because we provide security, if you really can believe that. Everybody there was on limited or light duty, right? Like we were all banged out. Like everybody who was hurt worse than the next guy, you know what I mean? Uh, guys were in cast. Anyway, but uh, but it was really funny. Um, you know, got a little yelling too, but uh, at the end of the day, I came on with a shirt and tie. My kid goes down, you know, again, he's a year in. Every time he went down there, he went down with a shirt and tie. Even if they told him not to wear a shirt and tie, I told him, you wear a shirt and tie. You cut your hair military style. You're down there. You know what I mean? There's no beard, you know, even though all of that is approved now. So, See, that is, uh, to me, that's a shock. When I, when I first started our chief of police in Salina, Kansas, John Woody, a Marine formerly on active duty, no mustaches, couldn't even go to bars, state patrol. It took a year. In fact, we were in the academy when they finally said, okay, you can have mustaches. And that, and I'm going, wow. And now I'm looking at folks and they've got beards and everything else. And I'm going and tattoos up and down, you know, and they've got a sleeve of tattoos and it used to be against the policy. They wouldn't hire you. And now it's like, well, if you can cover it up now, it's like, yeah, you know, if you got tattoos, that's okay. Mm-hmm. In my son's academy class, they wanted to put 900 in and they could only field 400. Wow. There you go. They could only qualify 400. 
And, and that's, that's a year 400 ago. even with lowered admission standards and requirements and PT requirements. And it's, it is tough to recruit anymore. Correct. And a quarter of them flushed out before they even got out. A 25% attrition rate, man. That's a lot. Let's, um, let's kind of start getting into some of the fun stuff because we've kind of laid the groundwork about where you guys are. Tommy, when was the first time you and this guy we call Mike, Mr. No Video, um, when's the first time you guys crossed paths and got to know each other? Well, so um, Mike getting on an 85, I got on an 86. We probably had crossed paths, but never really knew it. My earliest recollection was actually the day I got assigned to the 7-9 Precinct Detective Squad, um, May 5th, 1999. And um, the former, uh, at the time he was a lieutenant, uh, his name was Bobby Boyce. B-O-Y-C-E, not Joyce, J-O-Y-C-E. Um, he was handing over the reins from the 7-9. He was getting promoted to captain and leaving, and I was going to be his backful. And he tells me about this guy, um, Mike Prate, and another detective named Timmy Duffy, who has since passed, God rest his soul. Um, he's like, these two guys, they're over in your robbery squad over there? Mike's a detective. He got it through narcotics. Uh, Timmy's a white shield, comes up from patrol downstairs. He's in the career path to become a detective. He goes, those are your two go-to guys over on the robbery squad. What's a white shield? A white shield is your typical NYPD silver police officer shield, which is silver, not really white. But, but compared to the gold shield of the detectives, they would say, oh, he's uh, a police officer in a detective's assignment, but he's not a, he hasn't been promoted to detective yet. So we refer to them as the white shields. White shields. All yeah. right. See all of this lingo we're learning. So, okay, that skips forward just a little too far before we get there. Yeah. Um, Mike, let's talk about that. So how long are you on patrol uh, before you move up to your next assignment? Is the next assignment investigations? Yeah. So I did 12 years in patrol in the various, and when, when you say patrol at NYPD, it, it could encompass anti-crime, precinct conditions. You know, I, I moved around, but I stayed right in the 7-9. So then what happened was in, uh, I believe it was 96, they started what they called the Brooklyn North Initiative. Um, and that was a narcotics initiative where they were truly going to beat down the narcotics dealers throughout uh, Brooklyn North. Hey, let's clarify for our folks. You're using a euphemism. When you say beat down, you don't mean like go after them with a nightstick. You mean suppress crime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually Tommy Just, cleans that sorry, up. Sorry, I'm trying to avoid a lawsuit for all of us here. <laughs> um, Morgan, Steve, you guys are not talking to polished executives here. You're talking to the grunts here. We're mouth breather knuckle draggers. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Says the guy who ran a pretty large division at a few companies. So uh, anyway, sorry, Mike. Back to our regularly scheduled podcast. That's drinking break number three. Yeah. So I apologize. Uh, so I went... Um, I had just had my third child, and um, my lieutenant at the time that was there uh, called me up, and he said, hey, Mike, got good news. You're going to narcotics. And I was like, I don't want to go to narcotics. I want nothing to do with that, um, you know, whatever. He said, listen, son. He goes, "You're. I'm moving your locker over there. You're going to go to Herbert Street. Sure enough, I go there. They moved my entire anti-crime team to uh, to this narcotics facility and then assigned us to do buy and bust in the 7-9. Now, the funny part about that was that there had to be 20 teams of detectives. So you figure you used to go out with like an eight-man team, uh, apprehension and prisoner van, and then two undercovers. 
um, you would go out, and there were 20 teams at any given time doing enforcement in the 7-9. So what made us stand out was we had really good CIs. So we would go out and do those buy and bust numbers, but we were killing them with search warrants. We had CIs that could buy anywhere. You know, you didn't want to send. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I can tell you this now. My whole goal was never to send a detective undercover into the housing project. Like, there was no way he was going up to the 11th floor and making a hand-to-hand buy. Someplace that, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you, I, I didn't want to send any anyone, anywhere, someone, let me, let me take that, take two. I feel like I'm drinking. Let me, I don't want to send anyone someplace that I wouldn't be and I didn't feel safe. And I wouldn't let the undercovers go in there. So, like I said, we, we had two or three really good CIs who could buy anywhere. And I'm talking like, we weren't just buying like, you know, a dime or a nick. We were buying guns. We were buying weight. We were buying eight balls. We were, I mean, these guys were just nonstop. So that kind of was our bread and butter. 18 months in narcotics, there was a city, uh, city charter that gave you the detective shield. So that was the investigative path. 18 months, I, I believe it was 20 months I was in there, I got promoted. That next day after I got promoted, it was almost like a phone call, and I was I was the first transfer out back to 7-9. So I came back as a uh, detective in the RAM, the robbery apprehension module. So let's stop right there for a second. Let's have a little bit of terminology. Lexi- uh, you know, let, Let's talk about the lexicon, because NYPD is a little different than other places, because we can talk about inspectors. You got detectives, You know, different grades of detectives. So Help us out here, Mike. So uh, as you're going up, as you come in, you're a probationary police officer, a PPO, which is also sounds like a health plan, but uh, you're a pro- probationary police officer. So then you become a police officer. So what's what's the rank structure like? Like when you become a detective, is that like detective third grade, first yes. grade? You know, how does that work? Yeah, so you come in the door as detective third grade, and then through your accomplishments or, you know, again, there's there's a lot of different paths that get you <laughs> let Tommy uh highlight that but um then you move to second grade and then um the top where you would end up is a detective first grade and at the time i believe they were only carrying six to seven hundred detectives throughout the whole job who had the designation of first grade so what's the what's the third second and first grade equivalent to like if you're thinking like a rank structure like in lapd i know we talked to some guys d3 is like an equivalent of a of a lieutenant that d2 kind of like a sergeant was there any comparison to rank yeah, detective second. Detective second, well, not not in rank structure, but in pay-wise, you would make what a sergeant made, and then detective first grade, you would make what a lieutenant made. So, but who but then in terms of who supervised you guys, uh, was it was the rank above that then? Once you got there, did you go to lieutenant? How did that work? No, so when you were that that's where you ended up. Like that was your like for me, ending up as a first grade detective. I, I would go no higher than that, right? Then I would have to go the civil service route of becoming a sergeant, a lieutenant like Tom, getting a captain's pay with the money. You know, all of that, I would have to I would have to take it in the civil service rank. The detective rank was truly appointed. So, so if you went from a D3 and wanted, or a de- detective third grade, and you wanted to become a sergeant, does that involve a drop in pay? So you, uh, it depended on what, it, it would help you, right, Tom? And you tell me, you, I think you might be a little familiar with this, but it would help you on the pay step where you were, right? Because there was a five-year pay step at Correct. some point. Yep. Correct. So basically what happens is 
if you are a detective third grade at top pay and you get promoted to sergeant by taking a civil service exam, passing the exam, having them call your number, they would then look at what step you're at in pay and then never drop you below that. So you can never go backwards. So that's that. And, and I really want to talk about a little bit about this D3, D2, and D1 in you know third grade, second grade, first grade in the NYPD or Detective 1, 2, and 3 in LA. Um, those, they become supervisors through uh, discretionary process in that. And I, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I'll leave that to the LA guys to talk about that if they think it's good or not. But you could theoretically be a detective third grader, a detective one in L.A., as I understand it, get promoted to detective two, now become a supervisor. You've never managed a person in your life before that day. But now you're going to be in charge of and running investigations. Running an investigation as a detective and managing 30 detectives are two very different things. Two very different. So that's just my thing. I like the NYPD structure that says, Mike Prate, you are a damn good detective. I am going to give you a discretionary promotion to give you not more responsibility, but just act as a leader and a mentor in the detective squad. But also, I'm simply recognizing a job well done and your skill sets are so good that that we want to recognize and we appreciate all the work you've done. And then same thing, one more step to a first grader and say, become the, like Mike said, 35,000 cops in New York city is only 600 or 700 first graders on the entire job. It's a pretty elite position to get appointed to. And, and they're saying, and what they're saying, the way it's supposed to be done, there are of course politics and deviations uh, in the real world. But what it's intended for is I expect you to be the, the, the de facto leader of your detective squad. But at the end of the day, you do not have any managerial or supervisory authority. And I'll give you the perfect example of that. Go watch NYPD Blue back in the day with Andy Sipowitz running around the squad room and running around the crime scenes and barking orders to patrol sergeants and patrol lieutenants. And you think he walks on water and catches bullets in his teeth? Well, I got news for you. He ever talked like that in the real NYPD? He would not have been, remained in the, that uh, that beautiful 15th detective squad. That he'd be, he'd be doing highway therapy up in the Bronx and paying a toll every day. So let's clarify something here because it was either he was also on Hill Street Blues, but he was also on that. Was it he was Sipowitz, right? Was that the episode where he had a cocaine sniffing turkey? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that he had some guys there already. He's had a cocaine sniffing turkey, and the guy had. But anyway. Uh, one of my favorite Detective Sipowitz stories is uh, they had a guy that they were holding a suspect, and the guy says, I don't want to talk to you. I said, I want to talk to a lawyer. Sipowitz goes, hey, give me your briefcase. He puts on a pair of glasses. All he did is he walked in. He goes, I hear you want to talk, and the guy just starts telling him everything. Well, yep. when he walks out, the uh, uh, district attorney says, hey, I'm not very comfortable uh, with what you did. I'm not very comfortable. He says, hey, you got a card on you? The guy says, yeah, sure. Gives him a business card. He goes, when your comfort becomes my concern, I'll call you. And then he walks <laughs> That's I, great. You can only do that on TV. Anyway, That's good. Uh, back to our regular scheduled podcast, drinking break number four. Number four. Um, but let's let's so finish up the rank structure too, because did you have to be a D3 to take the civil service exam to become sergeant, or you, could you do it at a lower level? No, you could do it at any level. So like I chose the investigative path. All right, well, the investigative path was chosen for me. I did I I I came into NYPD with a high school diploma. So then at some point. 
everything changes, right? And then you needed some type of and and time, you know, again, you needed college credits uh to to move along um in your career, right? You needed two years or four years. I f- I forget now. It's been so long. But uh I was already into the family mode or at that point. I had a I had a gaggle of children. Uh so so going back to school wasn't in the cards for me. And and I was an overtime guy on patrol. Like I was active and even in narcotics, you know. We we did a lot of arrests, and uh, so I went the investigative route. Um, so that that's where I was going. I, I'll be honest with you: when I got detective third grade, like you saw detective first grades, that I knew who they were. You know, I never thought that I would be there. Um, so those those guys were like what I always considered, and still to this day consider uh, the guys that I know who came who were before me as legends. They were legends they walked into the crime scene they were legends they didn't have to bark orders they didn't do any of that they led just by who they were and their presence and even patrol supervisors lieutenants captains you know kind of deferred to them it it really was uh you know something that you aspire to be you know hey, and tommy take it from there too tell us about once you're at sergeant how does the rank structure work up because uh, again, a little bit different thing. I know sergeants, lieutenants, captains, but you've got inspectors and things like that. Where does that fall all in the rank structure? Yeah, so it's really kind of interesting. So the civil service protected ranks uh, are exams <clears throat> up to the rank of captain. So it's um, police officer, sergeant, lieutenant, captain. Every appointment, every promotion after captain is discretionary. And you'll you're always a civil service captain in the designation of the following could either be deputy inspector, inspector, and then one star, which is deputy chief, two star assistant chief, three star bureau chief, four star, only one of them, uh, chief of the department. Um, if you compare us to LAPD or Chicago, the two next largest, uh, local police departments, they have, the same structure up to captain, um, but captain to chief in Chicago, there's like multiple um, ranks cut out. Um, you, If in Chicago, they don't have captains in the detective bureau at all. You jump straight from lieutenant to commander of detectives in Chicago. So the rank structures kind of start differentiating after that. Um, the NYPD, what the rub on the NYPD is, is that you'll see there's many more layers of management and supervision at the executive levels. That was done coming out of the NAP commission in the seventies. And then the, and something Mike can speak to, and you'll definitely want to circle back with this, the buddy boys at a seven, seven. Um, the theory was, is we got to overload the NYPD with a lot of supervision. Lots of chiefs and not as many Indians. Boy, I think I may have been responsible for some policies back in the day, too, that required more supervision, especially of me. Uh, yeah, that, that, goes, that goes without question, Mark. Yeah, we all knew that. Well, hey, look, we have so we've spent a lot of time setting context because, like I said, I think it's this is the interesting part to even being a cop. Cops know a lot about I mean, they hear departments and stuff, but to really understand the culture about the way things work, about how you're structured, you know, the sectors, the boroughs, the, you know, uh, the precincts and stuff. It's really interesting because it also helps set up a couple of the stories we want to talk about. So, Tommy, when you and I talked about this, there were a couple I said, hey, give me an idea of a couple of things you could talk about. And one of the things you talked about was. Some uh, and let's talk about something that you and uh, 
might work together too, or you know, we you know uh, we're aligned with. But one of them involved, I think you said something about a rap star. Yeah. So, like I said, got to the seven nine, met Mike in May fifth of nineteen ninety nine, and within the first couple of days, um, there was a big murder. And Mike, you'll you're probably better with the dates and times, but sometime in May into June of nineteen ninety nine, in the Lafayette Gardens housing development, um, um, and Mike, you're going to be really good with the nicknames and the names of the players, but. Uh, uh, Peanut was killed in Manhattan in earlier, and then um, now flipping it around, Wise gets killed in June of '99. Wise, Wise gets, gets killed in June '99. No, Wise World's brother gets killed at the side of the LG projects. Right. They believe that Peanut and his uh, nephew are involved in that. Right. So that's that's where with that. Okay. So these guys that we're talking about, they're drug dealers, but. Wise is a guy by the name of Myron Hardy, his brother, who's running the whole thing. And Mike will, is the perfect guy to talk to you about it a lot deeper than this um, because he did the work. I just managed the investigation from the supervisory perspective. Um, but Mike did all the, the hard work. Um, Damian Hardy, the kingpin of this whole group, Cash Money Murder, was the boyfriend of Little Kim, the rapper. And so what I'll tell you in a very high-level abstract is that there was a lot of money being made by drug dealers who were funding a lot of up-and-coming, aspiring hip-hop artists and rappers who were not getting record deals, quite frankly. But then all of a sudden, they got got their own labels, and they're cutting record deals, and they're all famous now on the backs of drug dealing and violence. That's just what it is. And Mike, we can, we can walk you through, but because it takes years. And Steve, you would know as good as anybody how long it takes on complex investigations. And certainly, you know, if I may give you props for, for the work that you did um, overseas for us in this country. Thank you very much. And we'll, we'll get to that later. I didn't want to take Morgan's uh, time up in the front, but I certainly want to recognize how much we appreciate that. It's not our time, folks. It's your time. We're here yep. to tell your story. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So many, many, many acts of violence, many shootings, many homicides over years. So I was in that particular assignment from 1999 to 2004. And in that time, there's probably 20 or 30 murders and dozens and dozens and dozens of non-fatal shootings all intertwined and connected. So I think that's a perfect segue for me to bounce over to Mike and tell him how he went from the robbery squad over to the catching detective squad, catching cases and catching murders to then becoming the specialized homicide detective within that, within that uh, geographical area. Yeah. So it's pretty funny. So growing, uh, and I would say growing up, growing up on the job in the seven, nine, you, you were involved with all of these guys in a uniform patrol, anti-crime type way, right? You would go in there. You would, you would be making gun arrests. You would be making uh, summary uh, street stops and catching these guys with narcotics and everything that they were doing. So the two brothers, uh, World and Wise, they both come out of uh, Classen Avenue, out of the Lafayette Gardens Housing Project. They lived there with uh, an assortment of different brothers. They had older brothers and their mother. Uh, and they were basically, they were basically uh, the young bucks 
in the Lafayette Gardens project. They actually fought for control and took control over from a, a well-established family whose uh, older brother had gone to jail. Um, if you think about it, Lafayette Gardens had seven buildings. And I think, um, like Tommy said, they went from 13 to 15 stories high, right? Figured nine, ap nine apartments on every floor. And inside those nine apartments were what? What, Tommy? 18 to 20 people living? <laughs> right? So when you, when you kind of think about that, they put it as 2,600 residents, right? So these guys own these buildings. Like when I say owned, they were controlling the trade in and out of, of, the, business, of the building. When NYSHA decided to put magnetic doors to keep the residents safe, they just extorted the residents for their keys. The only way the residents could get in or out of the building to the magnetic doors if these guys opened it. So if you think about it, as we pushed the drug trade off the street in that 96 initiative, really what we did is just push them inside to the second, third, or fourth floor of the projects. Where you couldn't see them. You couldn't see them. You couldn't send somebody, you know, unless you had a CI. And I can tell you, a lot of times the CI went to the you know, housing project, you had information like you have to knock on the door twice and step to the right. If the guy stepped to the left, they came out and hit him with a bat. And you'd be like, hey, what happened to the CI? Why didn't you come back? Maybe he burnt all money. And then like three days later, you get a call like, yeah, I'm just getting out of the hospital. You know, they hit me with a baseball bat when I stepped to the left. You know, and then the funny thing would be, why did you step to the left? We told you to step to the right. And he's like, oh, I told you to left. <laughs> well, not to mention you take it indoors like that and you just terrorize that entire building of, you know, there's going to be some honest, hardworking people in there. And now they're living under a terroristic atmosphere they can't get out of. You know, I, I don't know if, if the right way to describe it is like Dante's Inferno, but there's different levels of hell. And like as I moved from patrol and then like now started to do stuff inside the housing projects and you were in there, like those good people that lived in the ha housing project. And I, I don't even know if you could say projects anymore. Can you tell me I have to say developments now? But but the projects, they were terrorized every day. The elevators didn't work because the drug dealers held the elevator, right? You got to think of it. Think about the business model of that. Also, crack to everybody in the building. I don't have to have any strangers come in. If anybody comes in that I don't know, I don't sell to them. That stops the whole undercover operation. So these guys owned that whole set. And there were different families in there, you know, chaotic families along the way. But um, that's that's really what it was. Um, go yeah, ahead. and to tie in the big celebrities, what you know, and this is what a lot of people don't realize. I mean, we're talking about this all permeates into Mike Tyson, where you know his really good buddy and one of the guys who worked his security detail was a guy by the name of Daryl Baum, aka Hamo. Hamo's out there. Um, they're putting out hits. I mean, this is this is hitting like everyone's watching TMZ and they're watching all of these other shows and they're reading whatever magazines are out there. They're not seeing this underside of this these drug gangs all being fueled uh, and and financed by these massive drug dealers, and they are dominating the territories of these neighborhoods through, I mean, sheer violence and if you and if you could follow for for listeners who aren't familiar with the the um real inner workings of law enforcement and really seeing the authenticity of what's happening out in the street you know there's another tv show uh the wire that i think not totally there are some sensational parts and they've taken poetic license on some 
but some of the way they talk, show the drug dealers and the the dealers climbing and then and then Stringer Bell trying to go legitimate and all of a sudden he's this big well they're taking all this money and they're trying to go legitimate and I don't know if they ever really go legitimate because like Marlo when he cops his plea and he goes back he still can't get out of the out of the hood you know he can't he can't drop the gun like they gave him his free pass and he still had to go bang you know um but a lot of celebrities coming out of the Marcy houses and the Lafayette Gardens houses uh, Jay-Z being one of them. I'm not making any allegations as to what Jay-Z may or may not have done, but this is where he grew up and this is where he played and he ran and all of these guys and the three developments, uh, Tompkins, Sumner and Marcy were all fighting with each other. And then they fought with Lafayette and there was overflows into these developments for their drug control. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is all public record. You can read the articles. You can Google them. You can YouTube search them. They're all out there. And and it's the best is the fact that one of uh, our nemesis, Mike. I'm going to deviate a little bit, um, and you can you can speak to the the connection. But one of and just to show you how it goes, it even continues now in jail. That one of the guys, a trigger puller that we used to chase, who's incarcerated for bribing a witness in a murder case is best friends and hangs out with David Berkowitz, the son of Sam in upstate New York in prison. And they're on Instagram together. You can't even make this up. Oh, what, what, a, what a great role model. Yep. Yep. Mike, am I lying? Am I saying anything that's not true? No, hundred percent accurate. Well, Hey, let's talk Jay-Z's real name. I was just pulling it up here just to be sure. Sean Corey Carter. Did, did you have any contact with him before he was the artist known as Jay-Z? I did. I did not have anything personal with him, but with his, I guess you want to say his entourage, his guys, like his number one and number two best guys, they're with him everywhere. Um, we've we ran into them down in Mossy Projects all the time. Man, I it just you know the thing is, is that we you know you hear a lot of people call it gangster rap and stuff, but but for you guys to lay it out to understand. Out of a lot of these people that are coming out, it's Steve, it's very similar. I'm just thinking this has shades of Pablo because you've got all of this narco money or this illegal money that is now fueling other things. They're trying to go legitimate or they want to be big stuff. But you might become a big star, but the point about it is it's blood money. It's on the backs yeah. and the deaths and the violence visited upon every I mean, this sounds this sounds like Pablo's playbook, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all the same thing. And and you never, it's it's just like you guys, both of you guys just said, you don't go legit in that business because somebody's always wanting a favor. They're wanting a connection. They're wanting an introduction, whatever it might be. You're never completely out of that business. Not in my right. opinion. Right. Well, and it's also the street cred, right? I mean, you don't want to lose that, you know, that's, that's usually what's, you know, and especially in the rap side of the house, it's all about the street cred. So you want to be real, real right there. I just remember when uh, it was funny. I, I, and, you know, now I'm dating myself, but like when Biggie Smalls was out there and he was with Little Kim and they had this other little up and coming rap group called Junior Mafia. I just remember locking them up and getting them in a car one night, a stolen car. And they were talking about like up in the squad when we were up there, they were talking about doing a rap song and describing us, you know, like, hey, we're going to describe you as fat detectives. And <laughs> they were actually rapping right there in the, in the thing. It was actually pretty funny. They They were. It was funny. But the, but all of this stuff was all intertwined. And, you know, I remember on one big RICO case that we did in the 7-7, this Mike was when I was a sergeant before I met Mike, we did a big RICO case. And one of the detectives 
um, kept going to the U.S. attorney, and you guys will really appreciate this. And every time they brought somebody in, they heard they they proffered them, they spoke, and then they talked about the, all the things they committed, and they just never stopped. They the U.S. attorney literally had to tell the detective stop bringing people in here because it's it just never ends. Like the cases and the violence everybody's connected to the next one and they tell you about more cases and you're sitting there going, well, we can bring that case and that shooting into this, into this Rico because it's in the furtherance of the corrupt organization and blah, blah, blah. But I'll give you, um, so Foxy Brown was another rapper who was a victim of home invasions in the confines of the seven, seven, because who is that? They know that's not a random home invasion. They know exactly whose home they're invading because they know Foxy Brown has money. She's a rapper. She's making money. They're all doing violence against each other, and they're furthering this 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 trade. Um, and they're taxing the rob the rappers or the singers who might not be paying the taxes that they want. It's no different than Italian mafia or russian organized crime the same thing they're going to the money makers the athletes and the we had an incident with stefan marbury where he was robbed in manhattan and you know they're taxing them they know they got the money it's like hey stefan marbury we're going to protect you you owe us money oh you're not going to pay us then guess what give me that one hundred thousand dollar chain right off your neck then and, you know, and this is what they, this is all the time. And everything came back to the seven, nine, um, 50 cent gets shot in New Jersey. If you remember that got shot at big thing at the Port Authority, right? Mike, I'm, I'm not sure if it was you, you'll, you'll correct me, but someone in the squad, and I'm sure you were part of it. We take the phone call three hours later saying the car, the Lincoln navigator that was involved in the shooting is in a body shop down on Clawson Avenue right now, being body filler going over the bullet holes and being repainted. Damien Hardy. So Little Kim did a song with with uh, 50 Cent. It was called Magic Stick, right? She's on Hot 97 with two of the DJs. I forget their name. Um, and, or he's on, I should say 50 Cent is on with two of the DJs. And he says over the air that he will never put Little Kim on another record again. Well, Damien Hardy is dating her at that point. Damien Hardy goes down to the record store, uh, the record studio, sits outside a block away, follows them all the way out to the hotel that uh, they're staying at in New Jersey and has a out now gun battle. Half the guys we locked up on our RICO case were actually involved in that shooting. Now, you talk about the uh, about peeling back the onion. This kid from this kid from Lafayette Gardens, he had his hand in everything. Like Tommy said, they were doing uh, not just uh, ball players. If they were they were extorting everyone, right? So they would come to the club in the city. Somebody would make a phone call and say, "Hey, Tommy, Tommy's here at the club. He's wearing all his jewels." They would just come out there and rob you, take everything that you had, right? Uh, come to your house, take everything they had. Um, they were worked up with guys in Coney Island. Um, you know, we touched a little bit on this uh, with the U.S. Attorney's Office, but I have to tell you, even the U.S. Attorney's Office was like, oh, no mas, no mas. We can't do any more. They were doing the Russians. We're doing the uh, crash accidents, like, you know, you know like you're in the car. The, and the staged accidents, yeah, Correct. the claims and everything, yeah. They were killing the competition. Like, so they were bringing the violence, right? And, and then 
you had the doctors and the group and they were paying all these guys. They were doing retail organized theft where they would send a minivan out to the the local shopping mall and the guys would run in with the uh you know the aluminum foil bags to take all the stuff. I have to tell you, it was absolutely baffling. When you get a different guy in for a profit and you thought you were going down the road and he'd say, Yeah, I killed those five people. But man, let me tell you what we were doing over here. And you're like, What? Like it's no you big will, deal. Yeah, like, but but the murders were like nothing, right? Like you expected it, right? So I guess I guess just to highlight for your listeners, we always had a hard time doing doing the cases because you have to remember, inside of the housing projects, the people that live there. A prison is in their own place. They, they that the, when you talk about the war on terror, the true domestic terrorism was happening inside the housing project. I, I don't care what anybody says to me. To this day, I still believe that. You know, you got to remember, like, you have a homicide in the projects, and Tommy and I go out there, and as detectives, we knock on your door, and you say to us, "Hey, uh, I was looking out my window. I saw that. What's the next step?" We're going to ask you to come down to the precinct. Well, the moment you left with us in the car, everyone else was watching. You were done. Your family was done. By the time you got back, already they had spoken to your entire family. I'm telling you, that stuff, and that's, I'm not lying, am I, Tom? That that stuff was like 100% legit. So really for me, I I, I guess the best part, uh, besides the guys I work with, you know, guys like Tommy, who allowed you to be the detectives that you wanted to be was actually hooking up with a guy from the FBI, New York office. And I'm telling you, they brought the hammer, right? Because now you were bringing guys in. You can't lie to the FBI, right? They were bringing guys in for a gun charge. Um, You know, you were doing 10 years, mandatory minimum. They They were actually dropping the hammer on people. And then when we started to do the RICO cases, you saw guys, they, they were just baffled at the numbers. And you didn't even have to really talk to them. They were just like, yeah, wait until you talk to your lawyer. And then you see them at the first profit, and they were like begging to tell you stuff. I mean, we we crushed it with that. Hey, when did you go? I mean, you know, the pace of stuff that's going on, how did, you know, we want to keep talking about the case, but I want to kind of take just a quick break here to talk about mentally. You know, Tommy, the other thing too, you talked about at that point, you were supervising a lot of stuff. Give us a Give us an idea about how you went from being a detective to being supervision, but give us the kind of the scope of stuff when you were supervising. I mean, what are we talking about having, um, you know, um, you know, the depth and breadth of everything that was going on just, just in your tiny little 1.1 square mile precinct? Yeah. So it's good, good, good question, Morgan. Um, so you're basically um, pushing paper and moving stuff around. And I would say that, um, I would actually suit up and get out with the troops um, on the big um, apprehensions or sometimes, um, you know, they, they just need an extra body to go out and look, look I got to go do this quick interview. There's nobody else around. Can you take a run with me and we'll go out and do some interviews? But basically, you're, you're, you're just really triaging the cases. And then this kind of segues into Comstat because, you know, prior to the Giuliani administration coming in, cleaning house, changing all the executives around, you know, bringing Bratton in as the commissioner. Um, There was no real accountability and no real responsibility to doing the work. You did the best you can. You tried to stay out of a no no scandals within your precinct. You were fine. 
right? No one actually looked to see if crime is decreasing within your community until Giuliani came in and implemented Comstat. And I think the credit, the real genius behind all of that belongs to Jack Maple, um, who I will make sure that Mike knows and never forgets that he was originally a transit police officer. All right. So, <laughs> so yes, it did. Yes, this is a fact. It did take a transit cop to teach the NYPD how to police. Same so, and you were dogging on troopers and stuff. See, there you go, man. I, I bet you there's a little. I bet you there's a little DEA action telling the FBI and the ATF and all those other guys how to do casework. Oh hell yeah! Well, one of the great lines we had was Rob uh, Zach Rochersky, whatever his name is. He goes by Zach. We were kidding him about working with the FBI. I said, I, I'm not going to dog the FBI, but I will tell you that we learned a lot of stuff from them of what not to do. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but, yeah, but you, you were more than. Go ahead, Steve. No, I was just saying that's a very polite way to say kiss my. Yeah. But you were more than a paper. Don't don't tell me you were more than a paper pusher, man. You worked a lot of cases. You knew what was going on, and we're going to talk about cold case stuff later. But, um, but even triaging and looking at that stuff, you had to make a lot of decisions about where do I put limited resources, what cases are going to get the love and attention up front, right? Yeah, it's pretty easy though. So let that gets back into Comstat, right? And and I have a perfect example of that. Um, you you kind of see what's going on. You're looking at your seven major crimes. You're looking at where the violence is, um, and you're just saying, okay, which cases are are vulnerable, make us vulnerable to Comstat, right? And and a lot of people say, oh, you know, all of these guys, all they do is care about Comstat. Well, that's where we're being held accountable. So yeah, that is what I care about. But what I do care about is the real numbers. Nobody's going to Comstat. And, and a commander who's in charge of an area is getting their horns broken on bicycles being stolen, unless that's the most serious crime within that community, right? So when there are shootings and when there are homicides and when there are robberies and burglaries and rapes that are the numbers are spiking or the numbers are generally high, yeah, those are the things you need to pay attention to. So, you know, you have a homicide team working the homicide, the two or three active homicides that you got going. You have a non-fatal shooting team working on the shootings that are happening. And what's the difference between a homicide and a non-fatal shooting is, is accuracy. Accuracy. That's about it, right? So you got those. So those are just as serious and, and you have to pay them, them attention. And then you got your robberies and then you have an, and the way the NYPD was set up is you have an entire robbery squad that handled just the robberies because those were really driving a lot of the violence numbers. Right. So you and then each one of those, like the robbery squad had its own Sergeant. So now it's a layer of, of supervision between me and the detectives. And you have some sergeants running their squads and another sergeants running their squads and, um, and what's going on in their world. And then just reporting back up. And the one thing that's very important is there's documentation, right? Every case, in theory, every piece of work is supposed to get the follow-up information report typed up as fast as reasonably possible. And then that allows the, 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 the supervisors, whether it be a sergeant or a lieutenant, to read on the progress of the investigations. And those reports lay out in a, in a, in a case in chronological order. And then when, they, when the paperwork's not being done, at the pace that it should be, and someone's deficient within their paperwork, then you're reading things out of line and out of order, and you're getting lost and going, wait, when are we going to interview this person? Well, we already did interview this person. Well, what'd they say? Well, they said this and go, 
well, where is the paperwork? Well, I didn't type it up yet. Well, guess what? If it's not on paper, it didn't happen. And so that's how you were held accountable. So document, document, document. And then there were certain dates and times that every case had to be initialed and read and every report read. And it was just a, and, and that's what I was saying. It's a big paper push because that's where they're documenting that each case is being reviewed and managers, supervisors are giving directions to the detectives. And it's it's in a conferral basis. It's not like saying, Mike, you have to go interview this person. It's Mike, Mike, this person clearly knows something. What are we doing? And Mike says, well, I don't think, I think it's too early. They're not really ready. I know they know. And I'd say, okay, Mike, I trust you on this. I, you know what you're doing. Other times I would say, Mike, we're getting our, we're getting killed here. The prosecutor, everyone's breathing down the neck. There's got to be something else we can do. Is there anything we can do to move this around? And it's just a matter of strategizing on the best way to attack the case, to move it as fast as you possibly can, because we want the person off the street, but not to corrupt the case in such a way that we blow something. So the best way to handle it is like having a back and forth. Yes, I'm managing the case as a supervisor. Yes, I'm the one accountable. I have to go to Comstat. I'll act as that buffer. When you tell me to slow things down a little bit, I'll go to the podium at headquarters on my uh, every 28 days, and I'll speak to that case, and I'll run, I'll run interference on that. And I better have a darn good answer as to why I'm telling the chief of the department that we're slow walking an interview on a witness. Hey, and l- before we get too far down, we use I violated the rule. We talked about Comstat, but Comstat is actually a, a mashup of a couple words. So, Tommy, tell because this was unique. You're right. It kind of you were talking about uh, you, you give uh, pay homage to where it originated from the transportation side, but it kind of took Bratton to really institutionalize it. Giuliani come along. What what is Comstat? What does that stand for? And and really, what is it a collect? Really, what is it? It's um, a mashed up word of computerized statistics. And what Jack Maple used to do in the 80s was he used to put, this is true, he used to put butcher block paper up on the wall. This is before computers were prevalent. I mean, we are this old, guys. Um, Paper, you know, index cards and paper. And Jack Maple used to go into a room and he used to put butcher block paper up on the wall. And then he would, in crayon or some kind of marker of some sort, he would identify each train station in in the lines. Like you have a subway line, the one train that has like 35 or 40 train stations. And he would write them out on the butcher block paper in a long sequence. And then he would mark down which robberies occurred at what stations. And then you'd be able to see the pattern emerging. Look, here's a cluster of five stations in a row that had five robberies in the last three days. And you go out and do that. So he was doing on paper and doing crime analysis before computers. And that's the way he taught us to do it in the transit police. And by far and large, the only crimes that were really, really significant and prolific were grand larcenies of the person, chain snatch, purse snatches, and robberies, use of force to get the property, either by, you know, either by snatching it and sneaking up on somebody, snatching their purse, snatching in their chain, or putting a gun, a knife, or strong arming them to give up their property. That let that outnumbered every other crime in the subway by like 10 to 1. Well, you know, I, I was just going to say back in our day, they we had the old pen maps, and, and a different color pen represented a different crime. And, and it was amazing how you could just pinpoint. It, it really does cluster up, and you know where you need to set your resources. I didn't mean that's, to interrupt that's you a, there. That's exactly right. And, and, I, and I will do not 
confirm or deny. I just know that some people used to break into the commander's office when they were eventually got to pin maps and move the pins around and, and screw everything up. But I'm just saying that that might have happened, but I cannot confirm nor deny that it, that it did. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including if you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released part one, episode one of the real DEA Narcos talking about the real DEA Narcos, Cali edition, Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell, Go in-depth, 16 hours about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the... Game of Crimes.